Uh, we're turning to John chapter 4 in our Bibles. John chapter 4. And we are almost done with our section uh, this year or this season uh, in written so that you might believe. So John 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 26 today. Um, just before we get there, I, I want us to make sure we understand that we have we've seen Jesus come and, and, and recently, and we've seen a lot of this, but we've seen Jesus recently come and call his disciples and encourage faith and that the Messiah is now on the scene. And it's just this amazing thing that Jesus is now here. And John the baptizer points to Jesus as being the Messiah. Then we see Jesus turn the water into wine, and his disciples are amazed at what he's done in this miracle, and they believe because Jesus is performing these miracles and bringing joy back where joy was empty. No one else saw it or needed to see it, but his disciples saw it and knew who, who did it. Then he goes in and cleanses the temple. He goes to this, this place and says, what you're doing here in, in ritual and practice is wrong, and you're defiling my father's house, and, and he gets really upset about that. And then from there, we see him enter this, this time of questioning from Nicodemus. And I don't think Nicodemus would have come and had a conversation with Jesus had he not cleansed the temple. Because now Nicodemus and his compatriots, right, his, the other Pharisees, are wondering, who is this guy? A lot of them just want him dead, want him out of the way, because he's, he's a threat to their power and the, and the rule and the law that they put in effect and how they're gaining from that. But Nicodemus comes and questions Jesus about it. And it comes earnestly. And, and Jesus then tells him there's a requirement for new birth. That, that I know what you're seeking. I know you're seeking, am I doing everything I need to do to fulfill what I need to fulfill to enter the kingdom of heaven? And God says, no, you're not, Nicodemus. Unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. And Nicodemus, this religious ruler who has it all together, doesn't do wrong. He's like, I don't get it. How can I enter my mother's womb again and be born a second time? And we're going to see a lot of parallels with Nicodemus today as we look at this, the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. But the Messiah, Jesus says, you, you're required to have, be born again. And then we see uh, confirmation from John, the baptizer, that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's from heaven. Again, John is saying, this is the Messiah. We're not at odds. We're not separate. We're not divisive, although our disciples are wondering who to follow. Both movements are good. John is saying, trust Christ in faith and be baptized in repentance and enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is saying the same thing. And his disciples are baptizing in his name. It's two of the same movement. It's two churches going, right? But it seems to me maybe there's some division there. Maybe there's a wedge the Pharisees can get their hands into. But So today we move from that into continuing to see Christ as the one and only true living water, the Messiah who is sent to give us life, and just that confirmation of that. We'll see that over the next couple weeks uh, as we close up this section. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get into John chapter one, or 4, verses 1 through 26. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we are so grateful for your great love and your mercy. God, we're grateful to to be here today, to be able to open your word and to look, to our, look into our hearts and let it impact us. We ask you that to, to open our hearts and our minds to be receptive to your word. God, humble us right now. God, whatever spirit we came in with today, God, I pray that you would just take that spirit and humble it even more so that we would be receptive. We would be ready to hear from you. And as we look at this story of the woman at the well and how scandalous it is, God, I pray that you, you show us you for who you are. And God, you show us us for who we really are. And God, that we come to a place of true repentant humility and, and, and faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the only one that we can have life in. God, we praise you and we thank you for the opportunity to praise you and to pray to you and, and to surrender to you. So God, guide our hearts and our thoughts today as we look to your word. May you increase and may we decrease. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're in John chapter 4. 
It's a big chunk of scripture today. I'll read verses 1 through 26, and then we'll, we'll break it down. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went to, again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Sir, the woman said, You don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you have had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, Am he. Amazing passage of scripture. And by the way, this is the first time Jesus just comes out and says it. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I am he. And we're going to look at that a little more in depth in a few minutes. But an amazing story, an amazing encounter here we have at, at this well, Jacob's well, where the Samaritan woman is. And today we're going to look at uh, living water and, and, and what, what it means to have living water. And that Jesus, being the living water, he engages this gal on several different levels. The first is this, number one, living water, we see graciously pursues sinners. Graciously pursues sinners. And, and it's really important for you to get this. Because a lot of us, when we come to church, we come and sit in a pew, we think we're joining some kind of clique, some kind of higher up, uh, you know, better than others kind of a club. Like, we've got it all together. We've got it figured out. And this is where you meet Jesus. We have to be very careful that our physical location is not what we're telling people to come to. That we're actually coming, telling people to come to Christ in faith from the Spirit, from the heart. But God, Jesus Christ, the living water, graciously pursues sinners. Uh, look back to verses 1 through 9. 
When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. Verse 4, look at this. He had to travel through Samaria. Now, I want you to understand something. When, when you left Jerusalem, when you headed towards Judea, you, you didn't have to travel through Samaria. It was a shorter distance. And most of the time, people who were super religious would say, forget it. We're not going through Samaria. That pe those people are unclean. We don't want anything to do with them. Re religiously, morally, ethnically, they're absolutely unclean. We don't want to touch them or be around them. We don't want to be defiled. We know what Leviticus says. So what they do is they circumnavigate Samaria. They go to the coast and up, up to shoreline and head over to Judea that way. Although it's longer, it's better for them. It's like the lesser of two evils. That's what they would choose to do. So Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria, but he had to go through Samaria. You see, Jesus wasn't just on the route that just was the easiest. He took the route that he was intending to take. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the property of Jacob that had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. Now, I want you to understand something about this. When you see Jesus, this is God in the flesh, right? So God Almighty puts on human flesh. And Jesus, the Son of God, has existed from eternity past. And, and without him, nothing that's been created has been created. But we see Jesus, the Son of God, condescend into human history and take on human flesh in the form of a baby and grow up to be a man. And the man Jesus now, the God-man, fully God and fully man, is worn out from his journey. Why? Because he has flesh and blood. It's a flesh and blood that will wear out and will ultimately die because that's what he's come to do because he had to. He must do it. So he was tired and he sat down at the well and it was about noon. And then verse 7 says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Now this was not the time of day for a woman of Samaria to come draw water. They would come early in the morning when it was still cool. Women, women would go together. It wouldn't be alone. But she shows up in the middle of the day, the heat of the day, to draw water. There's some scandal going on here. And then Jesus says, give me a drink, even more scandal, because you don't talk to Samaritans, and you don't talk to Samaritan women, and you're all alone here at this well. Give me a drink. And he said this to her because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. And whether he wants us to know that they couldn't you know, give him a drink, or, or that, hey, they're gone, the perfect instance right now is to interact with this gal on a basis of her heart, without someone else looking in and condemning her. He says, how is it that you, she says, a Jew asked for a drink from me? A Samaritan woman. And she goes on, uh, or she, she asked. And then John describes, for Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Uh, the word not associate there, if you, you look at that or circle that in your Bible, uh, here's what it really means. It, it's not just like, we can't be friends, which it, they, they didn't want to be friends. But that not associate was, uh, it, Jews do not use together with Samaritans. What is it saying? Jews would never drink out of a cup that a Samaritan is drinking out of. Some of you are like that, right? Someone, hey, you want a drink? No, I give my own straw. I want my own drink, right? But this is what Jesus is saying. I'd like a drink. I don't have anything to drink with. I would like a drink from what, what you're drinking out of. Oh, how do, you, how do you do that? So we see Jesus not just leaving uh, because he's afraid. He's not leaving Judea because he's afraid of the Pharisees. He's leaving for his own purposes. So we need to see this first and foremost, right? He's leaving for his own purposes, and the Pharisees, we, we looked at why, right? He, we saw, he, he said in the beginning, uh, the Pharisees heard that he was making more disciples or baptizing more than John. So there's this little thing going on. And I think the Pharisees may have wanted to stir something up. And they wanted to get rid of Jesus. And, and Jesus knew that his hour had not come yet. So he's like, you know what? I'm just going to head on out. Not because he's just scared. Jesus isn't scared of anything. He knows the mission he's on. And he knows that he's going to conquer sin and death 
for all of us, and that Father, by the power of the Spirit, will raise him from the dead. But the Pharisees also might have wanted to use Jesus' popularity to discredit John. So if Jesus and John in the same area, the Pharisees said, hey, it's all about Jesus. John, you're discredited, which would have discredited everything John had already said against the Pharisees. They would have loved that, right? John has been really harsh against the Pharisees. So has Jesus. But John has been really harsh. And if the Pharisees can discredit one of these movements, maybe it'll, it'll slow down and stop. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to leave. I'm going to let this movement continue on. You can't just discredit it because now I'm gone, Right? The Pharisees might have also wanted to use Jesus uh, and John and discredit both movements and, and because there was what was seemingly some division going on. So maybe he could have had them both together and said, oh, look, they're, they're fighting amongst themselves. Nothing is true at all. God, God knew, whatever the reason was, God knew it was time for Jesus to head out. So he separates and he, he creates distance. And, and it's not because of division. He has two locations now of the same movement that people would trust in the Messiah through repentant faith and be baptized as an outward profession of that faith. But more than that, when Jesus leaves and he goes through Samaria, Samaria, he had a divine reason for leaving. A divine appointment had been made before the foundations of the world. That divine appointment was with the Samaritan woman. And Jesus was not just responding, he was acting purposefully, right? Because God graciously pursues sinners, he was acting in grace. Verse 4 said he had to travel. He must travel. I want to show you some of this must travel. We see it in John chapter 10, verse 16, and there's more in your notes. You can see a a fuller extent here. But, But Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not from this pen. And he says, I must bring them also. I must bring them also and that they will listen to my voice. Uh, Then there will be one flock and one shepherd. So Jesus, it wasn't just like, well, I had to do this. I had, I I better get, get it done. He must, he was compelled to act. He was compelled to go through Samaria because of this woman and her need for salvation. So he went through Samaria. That wasn't typical or wasn't the most direct, but he went through Samaria. Why? Because he was God's gift to the world. Some of us think that we're God's gift to the world, huh? Jesus really was. We saw this recently in our sermon series, that God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son, right? He gave, and then in verse 17 of John 3, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So how did God give his son this gift? He sent his son into the world to save the world through him. It's a rescue mission. It was all purposeful. It was all full of grace. He gave by sending so he could seek and save the lost. To seek and to save the lost. And now he finds himself at Jacob's well. It just so happens, right? Not at all. He finds himself exactly where he's supposed to be for this divine appointment at noon at Jacob's well. John Piper quoted it. He said this. He said, Jesus, when he sat at the well, he broke centuries-old taboo. He sought to be alone in Samaria. He sat on the well. He spoke and did not remain silent. He spoke to a Samaritan. He spoke to a woman. He spoke to an adulteress. He asked for a drink. And the only vessel that was available was hers. Scripture says we've seen the glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I want you to understand this. As we look at this text, we see ourselves and we see Jesus. Jesus coming purposefully, passionately, with grace towards sinners like you and me. That he might lavish his grace upon grace upon us that grace upon truth, and we have seen his fullness. We, who's the we? That's the proud. That's we. It's the angry. It's the critical. 
It's the lustful. It's the adulterous. It's the greedy. It's the worldly. It's the lazy. It's the fearful. It's the unrelational. We have all received grace upon grace. Listen, the first part of this text should reveal to you and to me that God in Jesus Christ means for you and for me to feel graciously pursued. Now, the woman at the well may not have got this fully right yet, but she will. But, and, and you and I may not have got it fully the first time Jesus encountered us. The first time God set up a divine appointment for us, we may have rejected him too and said, I, I can't talk to you. Why are you talking to me? I don't want anything to do with you. And we're going to see the progression that happens here. And it's amazing the road that this goes down. But God and Jesus means for you and I to feel graciously pursued. All right? Number two, the living water challenges the reasoning of the flesh. You see, you and I, and, and the Samaritan woman is no different, but we like to stand up and say, look, look what I've accomplished. I'm okay. I've got it all together. I, I can still figure this out. And Jesus is like, no, no, you can't. No, you can't. Look at verses 10 through 15. Jesus answered. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was saying this to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. So she just said, why are you even talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. He's like, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you living water. Sir, the woman said, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Now think about this. This is just like Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus comes up and wants to inquire of Jesus. Nicodemus is the opposite of the Samaritan woman. She is unclean. He is clean, ritualistically clean. He is learned and religious. She has no idea what she's doing. Her, her, her culture has mixed up so many things and intermixed so many things. She's lost. But they both come to Jesus and inquiring. He's rich. She's poor, right? They, they come to Jesus inquiring. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? You must be born again. He's like, I, don't have, I can't climb into my oversized mother's womb and be born again because I'm a human being adult. Like, you don't get it. You're talking about the flesh. Like, what are you talking about? And this woman, the same thing, comes up and says, I, I'm living water, and if you, if you really knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink. Where's your bucket? You don't have a bucket to give me any water. I, I, yeah, I'm here for water, but you don't have a bucket. I, I'm the only one with a bucket. How can you give me water? You see how we, we kind of stop? We make the same excuses. We think about it in relational uh, or in, in uh, physical ways. Oh, I, I, I've got it figured out. How can you do anything to change my life, Jesus? And Jesus all the while is saying it's not about the outward. It's about the inward. It's about the need you have right there in your heart. Nicodemus, you must be born again inside. To the woman at the well, you must receive the living water and drink from the living water from your heart on the inside. She says, you don't have a bucket. And she goes on, she says, you, you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? I mean, this was, and Jacob to the Jews and to the Samaritans was, was it. I mean, he, he was a, a patriarch. And here we are at Jacob's well. She visits all the time. By the way, it's kind of out of her way to go visit Jacob's well. There's other places of water, sources of water. She's really going out of her way, both in distance and time of day, to avoid some exposure. But it's like, isn't Jacob better than you? How can you be better than Jacob? He gave us this well. He drank from it himself. And so did his livestock and his sons. Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again. Again, he's, he's countering the physical. You, you think this is just about water. Physical water. I don't have a bucket at all, but I can give you more water than you could ever handle. 
He says, but whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. We knew this gal, and we'll see in a minute her sin, right? And what was going on in her life, this adulterous woman. What a great Valentine's Day sermon, right? The, the, the woman at the well. But I want you to think about that. I think about this woman who has this sin of, of having multiple sexual partners or husbands and, and, and being maybe used and abused or using and abusing herself. The baggage she has and the, and the, and the depth and the cavernous depth of her heart that's, that's such in dire need of quenching that she continues to pursue it in all the physical ways that she can, never ever being satisfied. So what does Jesus say? I've got a water that will quench your thirst forever. In fact, it'll well up to you in a spring of eternal life and overflow. You'll never need again. He answers her deepest need. He's speaking to the heart. He's challenging the reasoning of the flesh. So the woman says, sir, give me this water. And we think sometimes we read that like, oh, she's turning. She's turning the corner here. She wants the water. She wants what Jesus has to offer for her heart. But see what she says. Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come where? Here. To draw water. I don't want to come here. You see, she doesn't see it yet. She, she's like Nicodemus, right? And, and Jesus said to Nicodemus, I have new birth for you. It's living water. He said, where's the woman's womb big enough for me? The, the, the woman as well says, he says, you have, you have living water. I'm going to give you living water. She's like, where's your bucket? They're both blind and unable to see the glory of the only Son of God. Why? Well, it's because of pride. And not seeing past the outer layer and into the need of the heart. In fact, avoiding it. She wanted to avoid being seen for who she was. We'll come back to that word here in a minute in verse 15. But in Jeremiah 2, 13, it says this. My people have committed a double, double evil. For they have abandoned me. That's one. They've abandoned me. And abandoned me, the fountain of living water. Let's describe who he is. So they've exchanged the fountain of living water for, it says, and they've dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. We want to avoid so badly to expose our heart. We want to avoid so badly to expose the sin and the error of our ways. We want to avoid, avoid so badly exposing the depth of emptiness and depravity within us. So we hide it and we continue to fill it and we dig our own cisterns that will never hold water that will never, ever satisfy, but in doing so, we abandon God and the hope we'd have in Him as the fountain of living water. And she questions, how, how is Jesus superior to Jacob? And Jesus is basically like, yes, I am superior to Jacob, and my gift is superior, and my water is superior, and my well is superior, and my sons and daughters who trust me in faith are superior because they will never die. There is something superior than Jacob's well. Psalm 36, 5 through 9. Lord, your faithful love reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your judgments like the deepest sea. Lord, you preserve people and animals. How priceless your faithful love is, God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings, they are filled from the abundance of your house. You let them drink from your refreshing stream, for the wellspring of life is with you. By means of your light, we see light. You know, there's hope right here. Of course Jesus' water is better. He's God in the flesh, and he's always said that he's better. 
If we'd run to him, he would be the refuge. If we'd run to him and drink from him, we'd find refreshment and the wellspring of life that's in him. And by his light, we would see light and move out of darkness. But she doesn't get it. She just says, give me some, right? I I just want some of that water if I never have to come back here. Her desire was out of convenience. So she's still half puzzled here about what he's really talking about. She She just wanted water so she didn't have to make the trip anymore. It's like, wait, you can install a well at my house, a faucet? Let's do that. All this water means to her is that it would save her the trouble of coming to the well in the heat of the day and being exposed. So then comes this stunning twist in verse 16 as we move on. The deep things of God cannot be understood by a frivolous soul. So understand that, that this this gal is frivolously thinking fleshly and, and to save her own skin, not to heal her own heart. God's word must have an honest and humble heart. And our reasoning tries to block it. So that's where Jesus goes next. Number three, the living water exposes the depth of the heart. Exposes the depth of the heart. It's interesting, if you go back later on and look at these segments, Jesus basically leaves everything behind. He says something and he moves on and he never goes back to it again. So now he's moving on from the living water. He's moving on to something totally different. She didn't quite get it. I'm talking, Jesus wants to talk about the heart and move beyond the flesh. So now what does he have to do if she didn't quite get it? He has to expose the depths of the heart. Verses 16 to 20. So she says, give me the drink. And he says, go call your husband. He told her, and come back where? Come back here. Remember we talked about that a minute ago in verse 15. We'll get back to that. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have said correctly. I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you have had five husbands. And the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Man, it seems like we're getting down to business now, right? It seems like we're really going to get somewhere. This gal's heart is totally exposed. She's caught, and she understands that he understands what's going on inside. So what does she do? I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but the Jews say the place to worship is in Jerusalem. What did she do? What's that? She deflected. She changed the subject. She's like, I, I know your heart. I know that you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now, you can't call your husband because it's not real marriage. You're not even with, with him. He's just your boyfriend to live in. You're playing house. I know the depths of your heart. I know why you don't want to come here. I know how, how it is to feel exposed, right? You feel exposed. I know all about your sin. Well, are we to worship on this mountain or that mountain? Where should we worship? See, and, and the deflection is this. The deflection is away from the heart. Jesus wants to get to the heart. And like the Pharisees or Nicodemus, any of us, we like to go back to the flesh, We like to put confidence in the flesh. And what she was putting confidence in is, well, we're supposed to worship God. Can you just clear that up? Where are we supposed to worship God? Is it it over in Jerusalem? Because that's what the Jews say. Or is is it here? It's in the heart. But she wants to go back to the flesh. She's like, I'm okay. I'm good enough in the flesh. I can fit all the requirements. I'm I'm good. I'm squared away. Mm, Nope. You're not squared away. It's about, about the heart. And he'll, he'll switch gears in a minute and answer that question. And he'll never come back to the adultery again. But he exposes the depths of the heart. So he had to get to the heart of the matter. He had to get to the sin. 
and salvation in the living water is only a product of repentant faith, which means we have to be exposed. We have to understand how deeply sinful we are. We have to understand how deeply in need we are. And that's not what we see here, at least yet. And Jesus, saying, you look at this, he says, you have correctly said, she said, I don't have a husband. You have correctly said you don't have a husband, for you've had five, and the one you're with now is not. You have said this truly. Here, here's what he says, and I think he says this to us as well. You know, you really know how to use the truth to mislead people. She made a correct statement, right? I, oh, I don't have a husband. I'm not married. Totally true. But she was dodging it, wasn't she? She was deflecting. She was trying to use the truth to cover up the truth. And we, we tend to do that too. We, we don't like to just use a bald-faced lie and say, I'm just going to lie straight up. No, I'll use the truth in creative ways to make it appear that I'm still okay and squared away. That's what Jesus saw here. That's what sinners do. But Jesus is, and that's what happens when, we, when Jesus starts to get to the heart. We wiggle and worm our way out of that, not wanting to be exposed from that. You really know how to use the truth to mislead people. So Jesus shows her here that he knows her public past and he, he even knows her secret present. And that word here is so important because he wants her to be exposed. We saw it in verse 15, right? The woman said, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here. I don't want to come back here. It's treacherous. It's hot. It's, I, and if I don't come in the heat of the day, I've got to go be, be around those other women. And they, they look at me weird and they scowl at me. They know my past. They know my history. They know who I am. I don't want exposure. But then Jesus says, go get your husband and bring him back here. We need to stay here. We need to stay in the exposed place. Jesus is exposing the depths of the heart. We have to stay there. But she doesn't want to be exposed. But Jesus knows that's exactly what needs to happen. We saw this earlier in John 3, chapter, or chapter 3, verse 20. It says, everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it. Why? So that their deeds may not be exposed. It's true of Nicodemus. It's true of this woman. It's true of us. We don't want to be exposed. But Jesus intentionally exposes her sin and her guilt and her shame. How else will we repent of our sin unless we've become so desperate and poor in spirit that we mourn and grieve over the condition of our heart and seek the only hope and grace and rest that is found in Christ alone through repentant faith. For us to repent and to really cherish and treasure Christ, it means being exposed. It means leaving behind what I was filling up that thirst with. Like her, you may move through sexual partners or maybe you move through friends or jobs or churches or hobbies or hairstyles, different wardrobes, different toys you might buy or maybe you move and move and move just finding different locations. But you're ne never able to settle that, that deeply unsatisfied, discontented heart with Christ alone. It's only through repentant faith that peace with God and you is found. And repentance faces sin squarely and calls it what it is. It's sin. And it's not ever going to fill up and meet a need and be the treasure that Christ alone will. The call is to repentance. Isaiah 55, 6-7 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. 
And we stop there, like, oh, I don't, I don't want to get exposed. That's just hard. But what are we exchanging it for? This is what is so, so precious. Let the wicked one abandon his ways and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will freely forgive. This is why Jesus had a divine appointment before the foundations of the world. So he could lavish this Samaritan woman, this totally sinful, corrupt Samaritan woman, with grace upon grace, with compassion, and, and to freely forgive her if she would turn to him in repentant faith. The living water and new birth that Christ offers is for the inner person, and you drink it with your heart openly. But she quickly changes the subject, right? Jesus, as long as we're on the subject of adultery, where do you think we should worship? On this mountain or in Jerusalem? It's interesting how we go back to fleshly things, isn't it? It's interesting how we go back to religion and, and try to put ourselves in a position to, to look right and be the part. The Lord says in Isaiah 29, 13, These people approach me with their speeches and honor me with their lip service, but their hearts are far from me, and human rules direct their worship of me. She's like, okay, I, I know I haven't been to church for a while. I haven't been to the mountain to worship. By the way, where should I do that? She's like, I, I know I need to you know, check off this box. No, that's, that's not what's happening here. But her heart is softening. Jesus never comes back to the issue of adultery. I want us to understand this. For some of us, we like to just press it home and press it home and press it home. And our friends, we may be talking to our friends who are Christians or non-Christians and bringing up an issue, and they want to change the subject. Well, what does Jesus do? He just flows with it. He goes with it. It's like, all right, we'll change it, but we're still going to talk about the heart. It's not, he doesn't have to press it home and tell her how bad she is of a person how horrible she is, how horribly depraved she is. He already did that. So he never comes back to the issue of adultery. He's not trying to get closure on that subject and to condemn her. She already stands condemned. He's trying to expose the thirst in her that she doesn't even know that she has. And while she's asking a question about where to worship, he's going to stay with her heart and explain how we are to worship. Not where, but how. Why? Because he's dealing with the heart. So number four, the living water seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now she brings up a, a question. She changes the subject, brings up a question. Where, wait, where are we supposed to worship, on this mountain or in Jerusalem? And what had happened is, is during the exile, people were taken out, and they wiped out this region of Samaria and, and took these exiles out. And then they brought other people in to just, oh, we're going to live in this land. And then they brought Jews back in. And what ended up happening, they intermarried, intermingled, intermoral, all of this stuff. And it was just this crazy, we call it a melting pot, but it was just debased. It was way off the mark. They, they didn't have a clue of where they started anymore. Well, the Jews in Jerusalem actually had the Scripture and had the rules and had the regulations and continued to at least try to faithfully pursue that, but they went off well as well, right? So not only did the Jews have it wrong, so did the Samaritans. The Samaritans totally had it wrong, but the Jews were still rejecting the Messiah as well when he came to say, hey, I'm here. So, so Jesus told her, believe me, woman, this is verses 21 to 24, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. So there he says it. He says, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. And she, he totally says, yeah, you guys have it all wrong. It's all twisted and weird here. That's not this mountain at all. It is Jerusalem. The Jews have it right. That's, you, you should think more about that and, and, and maybe you can learn a little bit. 
And, and even in Romans, I want to just read a real quick passage in Romans that kind of shows this as well. Paul, Paul writes in Romans 9, 4 through 5. says, they are Israelites. We're talking about this, these Jews of Jerusalem. And they belong to the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. I mean, th- these are things that are held on to. Not in Samaria, but in Jerusalem. And the ancestors are theirs. And from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all, praise forever. Amen. Paul says, not only is, is this true religion from the Jews, and they would do well to believe it as well, but Christ has also come from the Jews. So it is there. That is the, the correct way. But he goes on. He says, an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. But they didn't. The Sumerians didn't, and neither did the Jews. Maybe some Jews. There was always a remnant. The Jews had it wrong. The Pharisees had it wrong. The teachers of the law had it wrong with the Messiah. Remember, 30 years before this, the Messiah comes on the scene, born, and the, and, and the, angel, or the, the Magi tell Herod and, and his, his, wise, his, his wise guys, hey, where's the Messiah to be born? They knew. And, and they, oh, wow, the Messiah is born. That, that's a threat. We don't want to receive the Messiah. We, don't, we, don't, we, want to, we want to reject the Messiah. So the Jews had the answers, but they still were wrong as well. Paul writes in Philippians 3, he says, we are the circumcision. He's talking about this idea of having confidence in the flesh. If we just do all the right things and worship in the right spot, we'll be okay. Paul says, no, no, we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. And we boast in Jesus Christ, and we do not put confidence in the flesh. See, when Jesus was on the scene, he, he, he was seeking. Again, he was a mission, right? He, he was given to us and sent to us to seek and save the lost. And he was seeking those who would come to him repentantly and in faith and trust him to be Savior. He was seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And, and so it's not about where we worship God. It's about how we worship God. It's about from where we worship God. And God is here getting to the heart. Jesus is trying to get to the heart of this woman, telling her, Jesus seeks, and seeks those who will worship in spirit and in truth. Christ reaches into the inner depths of our hearts and he expects us to respond in faith from our hearts. Finally, the living water, number five. The living water is the Messiah. Is the Messiah. This goes so, so strongly along with our theme. Let's look at verses 25 and 26 as we close out. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. It's her lucky day, isn't it? Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Something really profound about this this passage. When Jesus responds to her, the word he is actually not in the text. So what would that read? Jesus told her, the one speaking to you, I am. Or I, the one speaking to you, am. This is one of those statements of Jesus, those I am statements of Jesus, identifying himself as God. The same name that Yahweh used at the burning bush with Moses. Who shall I say sends us? Tell them, I am, sends you. 
Jesus says, I am. What an amazing, amazing proclamation by the Messiah. This, this woman, the Samaritan woman, all alone with Jesus at a well. No one else around to see it. No one else around to benefit from it. And the first time he describes himself as God come to earth, as the Son in all his glory revealed as the Messiah, is to this Samaritan woman. Why? So that she might believe and have life in his name. Remember our our theme passage is John 20, 31. I hope by now you've memorized this because I repeat it almost every week, right? John 20, 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. For you and I, we are not much different from this Samaritan woman. We are not much different from Nicodemus. We might be all put together and, and awesome and, and think we have the answers, but we must be born again. We must receive the living water. Or we might be so far off in sin and so far depraved and so, so desiring no exposure at all that we need the same way to humble our hearts before him repentantly and receive him in grace, the living water, the real life, the hope, and joy that we have in Christ for everlasting life. I hope you would. I hope you'd humble yourself. It's okay to be exposed and receive Christ. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we're so thankful for who you are. And God, as we look at the text today, we look at the woman at the well, uh, God, we can't help but, I hope, see us and see how cavernous our hearts can be or or maybe how cavernous our hearts were before you. God, if, if maybe we're here today and we, we're, our heart is cavernous and doesn't want to be exposed, we're trying to fill it with some type of sin over sin over sin over time, God, may you help us to repent of that sin and turn to you the fountain of living water that we would trust you in faith to change and renew and redeem our heart and change us, transform us from the inside out. God, for those of us who have trusted you as Savior, God, may we continue to rest in the assurance and the knowledge that you have changed everything, that you do forgive, that you do wipe clean, but God, you desire that we continue to be repentant and humble, and, we can, and you desire to, for us to continue to treasure you above all things. God, help us to treasure you and to love you and to overflow with this life and this living water that you've given us so that the world would see Christ through us and in us. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.